Make your peace right now, all you parents in the land, with the idea that your children will suffer their greatest wounds at your hands. It's just how it goes. Kids lie to not be seen for who they really are. And we teach them to lie. Our thoughts are creating our reality. And whatever colored lenses we are peering at the world through, that is the way we will see our child. You cannot control a child who has lost control of themselves. Just because I work with parents, it doesn't mean that the parent was responsible for the struggles the child is having. It's not a pointing the finger of blame at parents, parents do your work, um, but rather to say, even if you didn't cause it, you are the only one with the actual power to change anything. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. But we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com but ladies and gentlemen oh my god we are welcoming back to unstoppable the one the only you and i and i said this um just when you got on you literally have uh, I think total consumed views of your micro content more than any other podcast guest. But I'd have to say combined, I think last time we checked, there was something close to like 30 million views from your micro content alone. So it's it's very safe to say that you're a very popular feature here on Unstoppable. So welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Um, now, first and foremost, as I said, you were have probably been one of, our, one of our most popular podcast guests. You have absolutely been one of our most popular, if not our very most popular speakers that we have come in and speak to our K2 community. I am pretty sure you're the only speaker that we've ever had come back three times. Is that right? Is that how many times we've had you come back now? That's true. And, um, that either says one or two things. It says we either love you loads or we have a lot of issues when it comes to our kids or <laughs> a bit of both. <laughs> but what I can say, uh, for those people who have listened to Vanessa before, uh, you'll know, you know where her genius lies. For those of you who haven't, you, know, you really are in for a, uh, an incredible opportunity to, to not just drink from a fire hose, drink from a hydrant. Uh, when it comes to the wealth of knowledge. And as we were just joking about, you know, some people, you know, those that can do and those that can't teach. And, you know, we're, we're one of those lucky kind of people where we do and we get, to, we get to learn and teach at the same time, which is so cool. So it's great to have you back. What have you been up to, firstly? Well, I've been up to a lot of things. I've been writing some books. I've been um, doing lots of worky sorts of things. And I've been living life as a mom, sorting it out with my two now teenage boys, how this is even possible. Um, and I'm uh, newly engaged. So that's kind of oh crazy too. And that's, what we, and, and that's very exciting news. But um, to, to, to kick it off, you, uh, you're obviously engaged now, which is incredibly exciting. But you've also got another book that came out since we last spoke. Um, what was that book? It was it's called Parenting Right from the Start. And it really was right. intended as a guide for parents of, um, you know, young children, the under three crowd. And the yeah. reality is, it really is a book for anybody who's ever been a human. So basically, anyone who's ever been a human. So if you've got a pulse, it, it can be for you. And this is the beautiful thing I've learned about parenting. And especially when I read your content, speak to you. Uh, but also work with my son. The, the, and, and this is going to add context to that statement. One of the things that I found is the more I learn how to parent my son, the more I learn how to parent myself. Um, and it's been such a key distinction when it comes to reparenting uh, and as a part of my healing process of my journey. And yeah, you've played a huge role in that. Mm. Um, but I am curious to know, like, since we spoke, that was, Maddie, when was that? 2016, 2017. So that was about three years ago. Wow, it feels like 10 years ago. Has much changed in the area of um, traditional parenting in the terms of the dynamics and the types of questions that you get asked, and especially since COVID has hit, have you have you now found that the the bigger questions that you get have changed 
as a result of the new type of world that we live in? I think the interesting impact of COVID for parents and for kids is that it took whatever the pre-existing baseline was and it um, polarized it. And so for parents that were just getting ready to tip into the world of, you know, like what is really going on with my kid and what's really going on with me, they, they were able to push this giant pause button and get all of this kind of squishy together time locked up in their houses and really... Um, explore that. And on the other end, I have seen uh, parents and kids who, uh, for whom there was probably already a significant struggle and, and COVID has just really magnified that. And so I see a lot of kids and a lot of families in crisis right now. So have the types of um, the issues that you've seen create crises change in the last four months as a result of COVID? Because obviously, like you're one of the best people in the world when it comes to like learning and understanding how to work with kids. And so your bread and butter is every day sitting down with parents and kids and having parents tell you their issues and you working through them. Have you noticed a significant shift in what those issues are? Or as you say, is it just an amplification of what's already there? It's just become a lot brighter and a lot louder. Yeah, it's an amplification of what was already there. And I actually think that that is the universal gift of COVID, that we mm -hmm. uh, didn't have an opportunity anymore to kind of sneak away from the things that we try to avoid looking at, that we were all pinned down by that and had to um, stare it in the face, whatever the lesson was that we were all waiting to learn. And so I I do see amplification as sort of the primary thing, yeah. Yeah, right. And there's so many lessons for all of us to learn. Um, but what I find very curious is, you know, most people get more education when it comes to get before they get their license than they do before they get a child, um, which kind of lends itself to, you know, a lot of the potential issues that we might be looking at, you know, today so socially as a culture. So I, I think as a good baseline, when you talk about parenting or when you're sitting with a parent, how do you define the role of a parent? Because that seems like a pretty big label and a lot of people get given this label, yet they don't, no one got given a job description. Do you know what I mean? Um, but from your perspective with what you know, when you, when you look at the label of a parent, what is the role of a parent? Mm -hmm. I think the role of a parent is to welcome into this lifetime uh, the child that you have been gifted, uh, to find yourself in a powerful lead position, not yucky power, loving, nurturing, powerful lead position of the child so that they can be guided through their developmental journey in a way that allows them to come into the biggest, fullest, most extraordinary expression of themselves. And so the parent births the child into the world, uh, and then the parent births the child into themselves. And along the way, <laughs> learns a thing or two about um, themselves as a human as well, the parent does. Okay, so that's the role. The, that's the role of the parent. That's a pretty good structure there, a good archetype. But what's the goal of a parent? And, and, and I know that might be individual, but let's look at it on a common language, on a, in mm -hmm. a common theme. I think the goal of a parent is to uh, make sure that you get out of the child's way that you pave the path in so much as it is possible and that you provide a safe um, harbor and also a launching pad for the child as they move through. The goal is that the child gets to actualize into who they are and your goal as a parent is to uh, ensure that that happens. And that comes with a lot of independence, doesn't it, for a child? Yeah, and I'm always really careful about that word because the word independence, we have this like really twisted love affair with it in mm. the realm of parenting um, where we have attached all of this value to the facade of independence. And so when our babies sleep well, we're doing it right. When our kids are well behaved, we're doing it right. When our kids can, you know, manage their routines and figure themselves out, uh, even from the very early stages of life, then we give ourselves this big pat pat on the back as parents that we're doing it right. But the reality is our kids don't need independence to be independent. They need dependence to be independent. And so we have to be careful to understand that the path to independence is not through independence. And actually the path to independence, and this is one of the things I've, I've learned through you, is the importance of allowing that to happen organically. And I think we have this misconception as parents where our, go our goal is, well, we want our kids to be independent, but we just kind of get the timeline wrong. 
you know, instead of it being by the age of 20, 25, we're thinking, how do we get this person to be independent by the age of six or seven? And I think unknowingly and unwittingly, you know, oftentimes we subject our kids to, in most cases, emotional trauma mm. as a result of our pursuit for their independence. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I think the question upon us then becomes, why is it that we have placed such value on our children appearing to be independent? And the answer, I believe, mm. lies within our own subconscious programming. We place value on that because we derive value from it ourselves. We believe ourselves to be more worthy, more valuable, a better parent doing it right if our kids sort of have this um, facade of doing it right. And so we get all hyped up about that, but it really is the wrong thing to be focused on. And we have this whole concept now that's been introduced and it's almost become a part of popular psychology um, in the way that people explain and, and compare relationship dynamics we hear terms being used a lot more now like codependence and codependence you know as a as a trait as a behavior is a lot more mainstream now than even what it was probably three four five years ago um, but what I found really interesting is the relationship between our pursuit for independence with our children and the production of codependence in the process so I'm, I'm curious from your perspective if you've seen a link between the two mm-hmm so I, I think about codependence in a couple of ways. I think about enmeshment, yeah. where we, um, we fail to recognize as the grown-ups in all of this that our children are not us and we are not them. And so mm. uh, we start to become, if you can think about some Venn diagrams that are overlapping, we start to become very enmeshed with our children and we are deriving our own meaning out of life from um, the performance of our children. The other way that I think about codependence is in not speaking your truth for fear of upsetting the other and then they won't love you. And I really think that if we were to talk about one of the greatest challenges facing uh, parents today, in fact, so great that it's likely an ep epidemic, it is that parents are fearful of being the parent for fear mm. of the child not loving them. And so you can, if you crawl behind that, there's a need. There's a need from the parent that the child will express to the parent love, that the child will show to the parent love. And whenever we go to our children with those kinds of needs, we get into that codependent kind of dance. And we provide our children their very first relationship template. They learn how to do relationship as a social species, they learn how to do relationship from us. We are teaching them a lot of things um, in that codependent dynamic. And so um, really to be able to pull the lens back and look at ourselves from the outside and watch what our motives are. I think that um, I often say to parents, what was your intention? What was the intention behind what it was that you said to your child that day last week? What was the intention? And oftentimes when we drill down into that, the intention is self-serving and we need for it to be um, nothing to do with us. We need to just be uh, allowing the child to unfold into their greatest potential. So when it comes to parenting, as I said, no one got the user's manual. It's like life, really. No one gave us the user's manual for life, and then they made it more interesting by giving us the ability to reproduce, and then we had to manage someone else's life and have no user's manual for that either. But where do we start? Like, you've obviously been in this for, for decades. You've worked both on the child side and the parental side. You know, one of the things I love about Caesar Milan is how he says, you know, I never, I never train dogs. He says, I rehabilitate dogs and I, and I train humans. Um, and I'm, I'm curious from your perspective if, if there's a similar correlation uh, between those dynamics of when you are, I guess, working with a parent. You know, is that, is that the framework that it normally, you normally see? Yeah, so I'm now, you know, coming up on 20 years into my career. Yeah. Um, shocking but true. <laughs> and uh, I don't work with kids anymore because I have learned that that is, um, mm. with a few sort of extraordinary exceptions, that is wasted time and wasted effort. When I work with parents, now we're talking because the parent then goes home to the child 24-7. And so I know that the work that I do with parents um, carries with it the 
a very real likelihood that we can change the world of a child. And so, um, so I've learned that the work has to be focused on the parent because the parent is the one uh, creating the environment around the child and that environment is what is creating the child's mind. Uh, and so that's uh, where all the work begins. The other thing that I have learned is that just because I work with parents, it doesn't mean that the parent was responsible for the struggles the child is having. And so it's not a pointing the finger of blame mm -hmm. at parents, parents do your work, um, but rather to say, even if you didn't cause it, you are the only one with the actual power to change anything. And mm. so that's why we engage with parents. That's why I work with parents. And so when you start working with a parent, like where do you engage? At what level? And obviously it's going to be different depending on the variables and the person that you're speaking with. But have you noticed some consistent themes that look, as a basic rule, you know, when I'm working with a parent, we start here. So I always ask one question. And the question is, what is the greatest challenge upon you right now as a parent? I ask it through the parent perspective. I don't say, what's the greatest challenge your child is facing? I say, what is the greatest challenge you are facing as a parent? And then I always know that the conversation is going to go one of three directions. One is that we're going to start um, a very in-depth conversation uh, about the parent's program and the kinds of thing the parent has going on. Uh, the second is that we're going to have a conversation about development and the realities of child development and how that is manifesting for their child. And the third is that we're going to discuss ways to to then step in depending on what the dynamics are at play. Um, and so each of those areas, of course, takes us down a massive rabbit hole, doesn't it? Mm. And, and I guess that's where, for those people who are listening at home, they might go, well, where do I start? Like, if I am going to start working on myself, like, where would be the best place for me to start as a parent? Is, is there a, you know, a one, two, three? Yeah. So I think, you know, this whole, you hear sort of a lot, do your work. You have to do your own work. Yeah, and people yeah. are often like, what does that You're mean? Like, well, what does that look like? What, what does that mean? Like I've, I cleaned my house. I washed the car. The dog's been fed. Like where's my, where's my good child now? It's like, yeah. What does that mean? So for every parent that's listening, I would say, think about the last time you had a big judgment about your child. My child should uh, be more cooperative. My child should not embarrass me out in public. My child should work harder at school, whatever it is. And then I want you to pause and understand that all of that's a story. You just made it all up and none of it is real. And I don't say that in a way to take away from your experience of that. Obviously, that's a judgment for you. And so you're having a real lived experience around it. But if we just pushed pause and recognize that that was a crust, it was a crust of a story, and if we crack the crust open and crawl inside, what we will find is that five other people could be standing around your child right now and viewing that exact same situation entirely differently. And so when we understand that, then we recognize that our thoughts are creating our reality. And whatever colored lenses we are peering at the world through, that is the way we will see our child. And so if we have come into our life with this ongoing story or program about being a victim, as one of our subconscious programs, then our child will be doing these things to us and they will be intentionally pushing our buttons and manipulating the situation. So we will see our child the way that we see our Cells. And so the place to begin then is to understand that you have to take the finger back. When you're pointing the finger at your child, you have three fingers pointing back at you. So why don't you get started with you and understand where did the judgment originate from? You get all that cleaned up and then you step in as a parent. You step in clean and you step in solid and you step in full of swagger and your child will be like, oh, there you are. Do you think one of the biggest challenges parents have when it comes to being a parent is they're, they're, they're leading from the place of the child? And what I mean by that is they're just as reactive as the child. Their buttons mm -hmm. are just as available as the child. And so, you know, in some dynamics, you look at it and you're like, I'm not even sure who the parent is here. Like, you know, it seems to be that there's two children here debating on an outcome. Yeah. So the world is full of people walking around um, in adult bodies, but they're really children walking around in adult bodies. I mean, we are all here just And trying. I know as far as to say that it's a vast majority of humanity, by the way. That's my yeah. perspective. 
Absolutely. And I think all of us, I always say we're all the ages that we have ever been. And so all mm -hmm. of us have all of our child cells within us. And all overreaction will always be an age regression. All overreaction will always be an age regression. And so if you are blah at your child, then you have turned into your child. And in fact, the more that I do this work, what I see happening day in and day out is that whatever age or stage your child is coming through, your reaction to what's happening for them uh, is probably propelling you backwards in time to when you were that child's age. So I was speaking to a dad the other day, his son is 11 and struggling with all of these things. Um, and he was trying to, you know, give me the story, the crust around this whole uh, situation. And then I paused him and I said, and what was happening for you when you were 11? And he was like, how did you know that? I said, exactly. I know that because you see your 11-year-old as so challenged and living a life that's full, so, uh, so full of struggle. And so we are always, you know, when we're having our, um, our worst yelly, shouty, hot mess parenting moments, and I have them too, we all do, uh, we have become a child version of ourselves. Mm. So how does that help Debbie in, you know, in Kingston or Regina, um, who's, you know, she's a single mum, she's at home, she's trying to make ends meet, her buttons are on the table, she's having a moment, she can see herself about to lose it, but she has that awareness to go, okay, I can see that my child is about to come out to play right now. I know how this is going to go down. What do I do? You know, what, what do I do to prevent me from going down this path that I've gone down a hundred times before that I know is how it's going to end? How do I turn left? Yeah. And so while you still have one cortical cell, you know, left <laughs> online in your brain, you take a breath in and you sit in the present moment. And I mm. want you in those moments, De Debbie, is her name Debbie? And I love that Debbie, you just yeah. rattled off a bunch of Canadian cities. It's well done. Um, for Debbie to know that it is not her grown-up self that has entered the building, entered the room, entered the scene when she feels all of that. And so when we can land as parents on the idea that, yeah, our child self is about to come out to play or raise all hell, but also present is our adult self. So take a breath and just know you do have this in you. You have it in you to hold ground, to stay present in the moment. And if you really feel like you're not going to be able to, it is far better to exit gracefully stage left. And what I mean by that is don't stay. Like if you can see that the train is about to derail and you are going to barf all of that energy all over your child and then have a big mess to clean up uh, for them and for yourself afterwards, get out of there, but get out of there gracefully. Don't say to your kid, that's enough. I can't handle you right now. Blah, blah, blah. You just say, oh, I really have to go pee. I'll be right back. Mm. And you leave, mm. and then you go and collect yourself. Take a series mm. of big, deep belly breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. It's going to counteract what's going on in your nervous system. It'll allow you to stay a little bit more present, and that's going to get you through that moment. But the other thing to really be aware of um, as a parent is that we can't continually live our life in the crisis moments. We have to, at some point, outside of the crisis moments, get to work so that we're not just leaving it for when, uh, you know, we're smashing into the brick wall of parenthood and feeling like um, we can't hold ourselves together. And probably most of those moments happen in the moment of a disciplinary action or when discipline or a boundary is trying to take place. And so I think this is a good segue to actually start looking at maybe what the construct of discipline is, what it, sh what, it, what it should look like, what it shouldn't look like, and more importantly, what the goal of discipline actually is or the goal of the boundaries in the first place. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first parallel I'll use, and again, I use Cesar Milan a lot, and I think there's a lot of commonalities between puppies and kids, and I have no issue saying that because to me they're, they're in the same ballpark. But one of the things I've learned when you're working with a puppy is the importance of strong, consistent, assertive, but calm boundaries determine the profile and the personality expression profile of the dog. And what I mean by that is the potential anxiety. And what I've noticed is when you try to train a dog, <clears throat> and if you're not, you know, if you're not continuous and not strong and calm and assertive, then the dog just takes the piss. 
you know, and it just and the and those boundaries don't stick. And I've gone, wow, there's a really strong correlation between puppies and kids. Like when I started, you know, when Noah came along and I started going through this phase, I was like, oh my god, it is relentless. But it's like training a, it's like being in puppy school, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, where there's not one correction that you can miss with, or you can, I guess you can. There's many that we do, but we've got to ideally do it from this space where we are calm but we are firm, but we're actually putting something in place that is actually going to create the desired outcome and not a counter outcome to that. And because this is something that you and I have talked about before, you know, how oftentimes discipline becomes this, this, uh, this role of intimidation and it becomes this role of aggression, it becomes this role that is fear and threat based. And so as a result, you know, children are governed from the ages of when they're born until the age of 13, 14, 15 by fear. And then they reach this age where, hold on, I'm now as tall as you, I'm now almost as big as you. I'm not as scared of you anymore. And you know what? I don't respond to your fear or threats anymore. Fuck you. Yeah. You know, you can take your fear and your threats and you, you can keep using them because I'm just going to be me anyway. And so we've seen that there's a very strong counterproductive output and product of that style of discipline. You know, we've, I think anyone who's been around long enough now understands smacking, timeouts and those types of things don't work. But let's explore that for a second because there's probably some people hearing this for the first time and going, what? What do you mean smacking doesn't work? I was smacked every day of my life and I turned out fucking fine. It's like, yeah, well, <laughs> let's explore that, you know? Um, and I said the same thing. I think I even said this to you, Vanessa. Like I, I shared a, a photo a couple of years ago on my Facebook page where I said, you know, I, I was spanked as a child and I grew up with a condition called respect for my elders. And I remember I received a torrent of abuse and I just remember thinking at the time, oh, look, I ended up fine. But it wasn't until years later where I started unraveling my work that I was like, holy shit, mm. I'm not fine. And part of the not fine part of me is actually because of this style of discipline. So let's look at that old school discipline. What is it? Where did it come from? And why doesn't it work? So old school discipline comes out of a theoretical perspective that I shall call behaviorism. And behaviorism is all about we see a behavior, we don't like it, we want to squash it. And so we do whatever it takes to squash it. And I'll tell you what, a child is, um, you know, whining or not cooperating or whatever, and you smack them upside the head, guess what? You probably squashed the behavior. And so if the goal was to extinguish the behavior, then you've met the goal. And that's why uh, behaviorist approaches to discipline, everything from smacking to timeouts to consequences to removal of privileges and even the use of reward systems, those kinds of behaviorist approaches to discipline, they work if your goal is extinguish the behavior. The challenge is that in the extinguishing of the behavior, uh, focusing just on the external presentation of the child, the behavior, we have lost sight of what's behind that. Behind that is a human being with a heart and a soul and a child who has by definition and by perfect ordination an as yet immature brain. We've just missed it all. And we ask children through those means of um, uh, discipline to shelve their own development in order to serve us because we like it. It's more convenient for us. It makes us feel better when the two-year-old isn't biting and the four-year-old can share and the six-year-old does their chores without whining and the 12-year-old uh, is keeping up with everything at school. It makes us feel better. And so we can sometimes sell out to these quick-fix strategies in order to um, secure the good behavior. And then as we progressed through time, we realized, huh, just as you have highlighted, there's a lot of deleterious outcomes connected to that kind of parenting. Outcomes such as uh, we have ruptured the relationship between ourselves and our children. Outcomes such as our children learn that they must perform in order to be worthy, valuable, and accepted in this life that they mm -hmm. are living. Um, outcomes um, that include you know, a lot of problematic things in terms of the template that we have designed for them over the life course. We even know from uh, brain imaging studies that the area of the brain um, that fires up during um, physical abuse of a child uh, is the same area of the brain firing up when we have used things like timeouts 
um, and those kinds of physical isolation techniques. And, and I'm, so I'm, so, I'm so glad you went there because obviously, you know, I've got, I'm a big fan of Gabor Mate and, and mm. one of his, um, I guess you could say, guiding scientific principles is understanding the trauma brain and understanding the impacts of trauma, what it has on the brain, but more importantly, of the development of, of the neuroanatomy of the brain and also blood flow. And so I know he's found correlations between, you know, and he refers to addiction and trauma being a spectrum, you know, on down one end of the spectrum, we've got light trauma, which might be, you know, the, the loss of privileges. And at the other end, we've got, you know, severe emotional and physical abuse. <clears throat> um, what I'm curious to know is how do we as parents, first of all, understand the importance of safety, but why is safety so important? Because if we don't create this safe space, well, their brain's going to mal mal potentially maldevelop. But what does that mean? Like in the context of your work, you know, if a child doesn't feel safe and their brain responds the same way to, you know, a timeout or a physical discipline as it would to a trauma, what are we actually doing to that brain? Mm -hmm. And so the brain will grow in a way that is highly adaptive to the circumstances around the child. And so if a child is living in an environment where emotional safety is constantly in question, um, alongside physical safety perhaps, um, but that safety in general is in question, then the child has to have a nervous system that is vigilant, that is fired up, that is on guard, that is waiting for the other shoe to drop all the time. And so their brain, in a miraculous, incredible way, will adapt to that reality. Now think about what that brain then becomes very good at. That brain becomes very good at being stressed. That brain becomes very good at being dysregulated. Not so good at getting itself settled back down to calm, right? And so now fast forward 30 years when that child's an adult, what does that child look like in their relationships when things become frustrating or hard? What does that mm -hmm. child look like in their, um, in their um, job when things become frustrating or hard? They're going to look like somebody who struggles to manage emotion and hang on to themselves. And probably underneath that, they will have this enduring belief system that they're not valued, they're not worthy, they're not safe. So is it fair to say that most forms of discipline become ultimately and unconsciously a bonding strategy, one that is traumatically based and often leads to people developing trauma bonding strategies at an intimate level, which leads to them choosing partners where I don't understand why I keep choosing a partner where this keeps coming up. Is there any connection? I think there probably is connection because I think, as you said a little bit earlier, it is in the world of discipline that parenting so often gets off track. And yeah. I find in uh, my work, um, most of the time, I'm not dealing with what I like to call a layer one issue. And layer one is your child has a really intense and sensitive temperament. And so life is kind of you know, intense for them. Or layer one might be, okay, your husband died and your child is now uh, dealing with that kind of significant loss and having to incorporate it. I mean, we have all these layer one kinds of challenges that present. The problem becomes when they get misinterpreted, the fallout from those gets misinterpreted, then we grow a layer two. And the layer two is all of the hell that we create because of how we're reacting to the expression of emotional distress that came with the layer one. And so really, to go back to the question, discipline is where, um, where things kind of go off track. And it is in that realm that we see all of these really challenging relational dynamics play out. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's only really been in the last five years that I've really unraveled my bonding strategies, my trauma bonding, um, but also my blueprints, um, like at an intimate level. And this was only one that came to me recently. And I'll, I haven't actually shared this one publicly just yet, but I think this would probably serve a lot of people. Um, one of the things that I, I, I found, you know, as you know, I've dealt with issues around self-worth, um, self-esteem earlier in my life and my career. You know, I've done a, obviously an enormous amount of work. But it wasn't until recently that I actually realized that I grew up with a single mum who used to always say that, you know, she's not going to settle down until she meets the right man who has a lot of money. And that was the ongoing theme in our household from DOT. Um, and as a result, you know, my mum didn't date very often. She only got engaged once. That didn't end as, as well as it could have. 
Um, but it wasn't until recently where I was starting to, un, you know, I used to believe that my my drivers for money were void based, based on, you know, I grew up in a low socioeconomic environment, you know, a mum who's single mum on a pension, and I wanted the things that I couldn't have. And it was only until recently, I was like, holy crap, no. What's been driving me has not been trying to get stuff. What's been trying to driving me is this little boy who's been trying to fit into this model of what his mum told him for like, you know, 15 years of what the perfect man looks like, you know, to, to a woman that I consider to be the, the ultimate woman in the world. And when that unraveled for me, holy crap, like it, I literally went back through so many different mm. relationships um, and even looking at the dynamic of being uh, of attraction patterns and, you know, looking at, okay, why is it that I'm attracted to a certain personality and that is not compatible, yet I'm not attracted to another personality that is actually very compatible. And I actually started to, as I do, overthink things and go, well, hang on, where did this come from? Mm -hmm. And I started to realize that even those patterns came from that bonding that I had, you know, with, with that maternal and that, and that paternal figure. And I think oftentimes as parents, we're like, fuck, is this something else I've got to, you know, it's not like there's not enough things that we've got to do as parents already, but now I've got to be hyper-conscious of how I love my child. And so the question I'd say, ask you is like, how do we develop a level of awareness on, you know, how we, first of all, you know, create and set in a blueprint, but more importantly, how we teach our kids how to love. And an extension of that would be, you know, when a, a little girl comes home crying from school and she's like, oh, mommy, my, there's a boy at school and he teased me. And then and the most parents would say, oh, that's because he likes you, darling. And that becomes the fundamental building block. Or oh, well, if someone likes you, they treat you bad. And so to me, from a, a, a connection standpoint, from a bonding standpoint, as parents, do we need to be or should we be consciously looking at and developing routines around how we connect and how we bond with our children, or should we just let it flow and hope that mm. you know it just works and that we're, we've done enough work for it to stick better this time? Well, a couple of things. First of all, make your peace right now, all you parents in the land, with the idea that your children will suffer their greatest wounds at your hands. It's just how it goes. My children will suffer their greatest wounds at my hands. <laughs> um, and uh, that's the nature of being a human being. And so you're not really messing it up when you mess your kids up. Welcome to the club. We're all doing it, right? And to know that you cannot script the human condition. And so if your child comes home from school and they're crying about something and you're like, oh, but I just read this really great book on that. And they said that you're supposed to get down to their eye level. You're supposed to, you know, drop your voice so that it feels really soft and squishy to them. Uh, you're supposed to place your hands on their shoulders and then you're supposed to say the following five things. Your kids are going to be like, who are you? And why did you have to go read a book to figure me out? Like, I don't feel safe with you anymore right? Instead, it is upon us to be for our children what they need us to be, not to do to our children what we think we ought to be doing so that they can grow up with a, a, a blueprint that allows them to manifest their, um, you know, their greatest potential. Uh, and so when we talk about being, it requires us to go inside. Do you see your child? for the very one that they are? Or are you seeing your child through your own um, lens, through your own perception? And so when your kid walks through the door crying, how can you stay present? How can you not go to, oh my God, why did I put them in this school where all these awful kids are that are you know, making all of this stuff go wrong for them? Or how do you not go to, oh, my kid is sad, I haven't done it right? You have to just stay present. This boy was mean to you. Tell me, tell me about that. How was that for you? And then what did he say? And then how did you feel? I get that that was hard. See them and hear them. See them and hear them. In fact, there is no guide or, um, or manual for raising kids, but if we could all just tattoo on our arms, see them and hear them to the power of infinity, that's what it mm. takes. Mm. Maybe I overthink these things, and I, I often do, but I've um, really become a lot more conscious of how I bond with Noah uh, and also how I bond with other people. And I know this might sound strange, but for a long time, I never really enjoyed um, talking about my problems with other people for the sake of talking about my problems. But I noticed that that socially is what a lot of people will do as a form of connection. 
Um, and I also noticed that, you know, that kids pick this stuff up pretty, pretty quickly as well. Um, but for me, I've, I have actually found myself really developing a high level of consciousness around the conversations that I have with Noah, but more importantly, the dynamics that we use to connect. Am I overthinking this? And I know I tend to do this kind of thing, but for me, I'm really, in, I'm really enjoying seeing the product of, you know, a, a conscious form of connection. So when you uh, talk about the way that you're connecting with him, what are the kinds of things that you're observing? Well, first of all, I'll take it back a step because for me, I'm someone who's quite socially awkward and I've noticed that I'm socially awkward in a whole range of situations. And I'm even, I guess you could say, I don't feel awkward, but I even sometimes find it unusual to relate to my son and as a social being, does this make sense? And so when I have those moments of, well, we could just sit here and just kind of hang or I could actually engage with you and do something. I'm, I'm doing rather than playing for the sake of playing. I'm thinking, how can I engage in something that is going to be meaningful, that is actually going to create a positive bonding strategy that hopefully will become, you know, like a, a social routine for us. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I hear you. And and um, I would say, try to find a way to sit in the middle of it. That you get to we just do that be. perfectly because we, we we but that's the thing we do that all the time like literally all the time we just hang out and we are in each other's presence but there are times when um, yeah I feel like I should be teaching him social interaction you know and I know he learns that from a whole range of places as well but I I uh, I, and I know he's learning it from me yeah I don't know I just it, to me it's a real theme right now I the word teach becomes um, a thing. I think. And uh, whenever we're getting wrapped up in teaching, we've probably started to wander off the path of being. Mm, um, yeah, and so like teaching that. is sort of um, separate from being. Teaching has an attachment to a form and an outcome. Being is uh, more like uh, allowing it to unfold. Um, and I think you know, I know in myself, and certainly when I've uh, connected with other parents um, through the work that I do, I think sometimes we go to teaching when we're feeling uncomfortable or uncertain. And so mm. we sit, it, it's an opportunity to invite ourselves to sit in the moment and see what happens and get curious. Well, I'm, I'm totally down for that. Let's um, loop back to discipline. I didn't close that loop. We, we did talk about the how, what, why of what what old school, let's explore some new school concepts that are not only psychologically supportive, but also achieve you know more goals than just extinguishing the behavior. One of the concepts that you talk about in discipline is slow is fast. So why don't you expand on that for me again? Yeah. And so development is a real thing. We cannot by downward extension, take the expectations that we have of our children when they become adults and apply them to them as children, because children are not tiny adults. They are children. And so instead, when we honor the very ones that they are, and we come alongside their development, regardless of where they're at, understanding also that development is not just governed by age and stage, but also governed by environment and temperament and all of these other kinds of things then we can meet the child where they are. And when we meet them where they are and we connect with them around discipline rather than disconnecting from them around discipline, we actually create a foundation that allows them to grow in the manner that nature intended. And so the idea is to go to connection over disconnection in order for the child to grow. So what does that look like? You know, my son has just... Um um, uh, eaten something he shouldn't have, has just done something he was told not to do, has been a right little naughty boy or a naughty girl. What does that look like? So think about it as a mountain. And to stay at the mm -hmm. peak of the mountain where everybody wants to be because uh, the views from the top are really spectacular, you have to be balanced because the slope on either side of the mountain is very steep, right? And so the balancing forces that are going to hold you at the peak of the mountain are firm and kind at the same time and so firm would be that is not what we are eating and I know it's hard right you really love whatever the snack was uh, and it was hard for you not to go and sneak one of those when daddy wasn't looking I really get why that would be so tricky for you and you will not do that again do you understand and so you get the, the balancing message of firm and kind firm and kind now 
to take. Why do a- I get the feeling that if it was just you and your child, it'll be like, "Do you understand?" I like. I feel like. Be- <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like eyes glow red? <laughs> my boys, when I when they were little, they used to call it "mommy's meaning business voice." <laughs> <laughs> so there might be a bit of truth to that. <laughs> I, I have no doubt there is. I'd put money on it. Nobody it messes with the great mother. <laughs> um, there's also uh, a little bit of follow-up around that because if the child, the young child, has you know um, not been able to manage their impulses around something, so they ate something they weren't supposed to or they smacked their brother because they wanted to steal his toy or whatever it was, they didn't manage their impulses around that, and then you get firm and you come alongside with kindness, don't delude yourself into thinking that that then means they will never, ever again do that behavior. Of course they will. They will do it again because their brain is not yet quite developed enough for them to be able to hold on to their impulses. And so that's Mm going to repeat. And your job again is going to be to come alongside firm and kind. How many times? As many times as it takes. Boundary, boundary, boundary. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Mm. Mm. And if you have been a parent who's been erasing your boundaries, well, you in for a ride now. Mm. Because when it, you, you get firm and kind, they're going to go on for a long time. But this is where, to me, I, I, it really landed in terms of the long-term perspective. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the conversation we had last time where it, it really became clear that you know, in order for kids to trust that, like kids obviously need us now. You know, I should say at the ages of you know, one, they need us all the time. But kids are obviously most dependent upon us between the ages of one and eight. But it would almost appear like they really need us, especially in the ages of puberty, because they're moving into that space. It's a new dimension, you know, chemically, physically, in every in every respect. And to me, you know, I've seen so, I've seen myself go through this. I've seen so many of my friends go through it, where they get to that change of life, and they don't have that that structure or that foundation of trust within their family mm-hmm. to be able to talk about stuff that's going on. And as a result, chaos can ensue. So how do we, how do we, so how do we maintain that trust so that when we get to that critical point that the kids will still engage with us? Yeah. And the key is, of course, in an ideal world to start from the very beginning where you have always, every time your child put a bid out, we talk about a psychologist serve and return. And so the child puts a bid out and the parent returns. The the baby cries and the parent responds. The two-year-old has a big meltdown, the mother of all meltdowns in a public space. You don't go to embarrassment. You go to compassion and you respond. The five-year-old's frustrated with their brother. You go to compassion and you respond. And so as you get that dance going, then the child knows to trust the dance, that that is the way that it's all going to unfold. So by the time we get to the adolescent stage, um, where we really as parents must be very careful not to retire too soon, because they Mm. may be walking around, uh, you know, in adult bodies and getting hairy and stinky, speaking from my own experience. Um, And they still really need us. They need to continue to be in the dance with us, to know that we can be counted on, that they are, you know, by definition in adolescence, they're going to be taking risks. Their brains are black and white thinking right now. And so they're going all big and uh, trying things on for size and figuring out who they are and how they're going to fit in the world. And there will be times when that works out really beautifully for them and times when it really doesn't. They need to Mm. know that we'll be there to answer with compassion. And so the dance continues. And, you know, I'm 45 years old. The dance with my parents still continues. I still dance back to them. (laughs) And so it never really ends. One of the things that I've really enjoyed about um, using this um, philosophy is with Noah, the conversations that we have around discipline are so profound. Uh, oftentimes it requires when the big emotions have to calm down, you know, which can require, okay, well, let's just wait a while before we can talk about it. Um, but yet yeah, I've discovered that we not only have incredibly deep conversations for a six-year-old, but it's also, I've started to notice in the last nine months that he's actually demonstrating critical thinking. Mm. Like he's actually being able to, you know, whereas once upon a time he would do something and then would sit down and go, okay, so why did you do that? What could have been better? You know, a little bit of a, you know, why did you do that? What could you run better? How could we do it next time type of a strategy? And I've noticed now where he will actually, he's actually said in a couple of times, daddy, I was going to do that, but I didn't because I thought about it and that would have happened. So I decided not to. And I remember just going, oh my 
freaking god jackpot <laughs> it's like yeah uh, he's only done it twice but to me that was like wow that is a product of that process versus kids perhaps getting to a situation where like oh am i going to get in trouble here all i know is let's just stress because that's going to be the outcome either way mm -hmm. and now i can't think anymore mm -hmm. and i think you know most forms of discipline i'm observing teach kids not how to think because it induces stress which doesn't enable us to process the situation or the circumstances versus the conversation although it can take time to get to and sometimes it's taken hours if not a day but we will always come back to it mm -hmm. yeah it's been quite profound so i'm very grateful for that so um one of the things that i also learned through you know our discussions which is the greatest threat that a child has is a threat of disconnection and but it's often the it's the number one threat that parents use for compliance um, and it's, it was quite profound, but it didn't sink in straight away. But when it did, it hit quite hard because when we think about it as parents or as a child, their number one safety net is that, that in the energetic line to us. Um, and if they don't have that, that's when, you know, disarray and chaos mentally can happen for them. I think it's pretty obvious as to why people use threat um, as, a, as a form of compliance. But let's say you're in a situation where you require um, – expedient performance you know you may not be in a slow as fast environment how do you navigate a situation that might involve you know public viewing and you've got people looking you're in a situation like okay i'm kind i'm calm i'm firm but we need to move here and the kid's not moving mm -hmm. what do we do so the first thing is to press out the gaze press out the feeling that everybody is looking in upon you because you're not here in the service of those people. You're here in the service of your child. And have you ever, do you know when Gandalf takes his staff and he slams it down into the ground and he says, thou shalt not pass, and that energy comes out and like nobody's messing with him. That's the energy that comes out of you as a parent when you have earned the right, mm -hmm. when you have earned parental context because you have established a trusting relationship with your child. When you step in with that kind of energy, they'll be like, Ding! okay, right? And the other thing is that if a child has really and truly flipped their lid, meaning that the downstairs brain has become all re really activated, all the emotional circuitry, so the upstairs brain where the thinking processes are housed flips off, right? So they've gone limbic. There's nobody home. You cannot control a child who has lost control of themselves. How many times do you hear parents saying, stop that, I told you, don't do that again, I said, stop it, right? And the child is just out of control. Because your stop it now isn't landing. Remember, the lid is flipped. They've gone limbic. Nobody's home. And so when our children are very young and they have this propensity towards going limbic at times, the good news is you're still way more bigger than they are. Mm. Get in there and take care of it. If you got to move, mm. you got to move. Okay, darling, this is all done. I know you don't want to go. We are leaving now. You can hold my hand and walk or I'll be picking you up. Which do you prefer? Oh, it's hard for you to make a choice right now. That's all right. I got you. I'll pick you up. Off we go. Rah, rah, rah. I know you're really mad. <laughs> Firm, kind. Lying. Um, all kids do it. It happens at a range of different stages for a range of different reasons. What is it? Why do kids do it? And how do we navigate it? Kids lie to not be seen for who they really are. And we teach them to lie. We teach them to lie because we uh, make them wrong for being the ones who they really are. So if they were the child who, you know, did that thing to their sibling or stole that snack or did whatever, and then we make them wrong for that, we teach them to lie. We teach them to not get caught next time around. And so over time, the message that can be onboarded when we demand our children's good performance in order for them to feel accepted by us, the message that gets onboarded is, I must conceal who I really am mm. because who I really am is not okay. And so I shall become something else. So how do we teach honesty? Is it just a matter of practicing honesty? So as a big person, of course, you walk your talk. You live in honesty yourself. You uh, bring that kind of energy to the environment. And rather than teaching it directly, understand that it is something that your children will absorb indirectly when you accept them for the ones that they truly are, when they aren't made wrong for being human. How many of us can say that we have never, ever, ever done anything wrong? Wrong. Nobody. 
<laughs> we oh, can't say it because we're all human. Yeah. But in terms of dealing with lying, um, like I know for me personally, I've kind of, um, I don't know if I made this up or if I, I learned it from yourself or somewhere else. Um, I remember as a kid getting, whenever I lied, I got in massive trouble for lying. And so I remember as a kid, it didn't so much teaching me not to lie, not that I was a very dishonest kid, but it just taught me not more about, just, it's a lot more dangerous to get caught than it is to yeah. perhaps lie. Um, but it also taught me to be afraid to tell the truth because there were situations where I didn't feel comfortable with something and then I did tell the truth and I got in big trouble for it. Um, and one of the things that I've been practicing with Noah is when he does engage in the act of lying, um, you know, first of all, calm and kind, very assertive, but then actually encouraging to the point of where he's honest and then creating a big moment around that. And I try to create a big moment around, yeah, oh my God, you're honest to really help him understand that, you know, he might lie, but if he lies and then he tells the truth, he's still going to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, is that, like, am I just setting him up to think that it's going to be okay to lie or am I actually, you know, creating a positive reinforcement here that could actually have an impact on, you know, his, um, on that behavior at this stage of his life anyway? I think it's bigger than all of that. I yeah, think right. that you honor him for being the very one who he is. He gets to feel, remember the tattoo, seen and heard. And so mm. he, he would, you acknowledge, because actually if he lied and you knew about it and he knew that you knew about it and then you didn't say anything to him about it, that would be scary for him. Mm. Because he'd be like, where's my dad? Why aren't you showing up? This is where you're supposed to show up. Right? And so you show up and you say to him, mm, that's a no-go. And then he gets to tell you what, really was happening uh, and you show up there again and all the while you just give him the experience of being seen and heard and not made run for the very one that he is. I've always said to my boys, you will never ever ever be in trouble for telling the truth. The mm. truth is always the way. And they have, you know, they're adolescent boys now, they're 13 and 16 and, um, and they've come to me with really huge significant things in the last uh, year to two years. And I've been able to uh, be the, the landing um, place for that because we have that kind of understanding. Gratitude. I hear a lot of parents talk about how their kids are ungrateful little shits. Um, and I find it curious because it seems to be a little bit of a pattern. Uh, and I'm curious if it's not so much a behavior as it is just a phase that kids go through at some phase in their life. Or maybe all of us as parents are ungrateful little shits. Ooh, okay. So the world around this is but a reflection. If that is what you yep. are seeing in your child, a lack of gratitude, uh, they are just a mirror. They're reflecting back to you what's on the inside of you. So when the judgment is, my child is ungrateful, where are you ungrateful? Mm. Where is it that you fail to have gratitude for the things in your life, including your child, who right now has just offered up to you on a silver platter a lesson to be learned, <laughs> right? Have gratitude for that. And when we can live that way, when we can ooze gratitude out our own pores, our children will live in the field of gratitude. Our children will be at the effect of that. They will marinate in it and soak it in through their cells and on up into their neurons, and it'll write a, a narrative upon their very souls about how it is that we be human in this, in this life that we're living. And so to be that for our children. And then, um, whenever I hear this, but my kids are so ungrateful, in the back of my mind, I see this bright, blinking neon sign, you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a wow. victim. And so your program is just loud. I'm being victimized by my ungrateful little shits of kids, <laughs> right? And so then yeah. that's your work. Oh, I love that. And oh, you, have, you have gratitude for your children around offering you that lesson. And that's exactly what I say. You have gratitude for your children for offering you that that opportunity, that um, yeah, that lesson, that work. Um, family integrations. I know, as we mentioned earlier, you've just um, you're now uh, happily engaged. Look at that spicing ring you've got on there. Massive congratulations to you. Thanks. But you're obviously been going through the process of um, integrations, and you know I'm going through that process now myself. Um, you know I deal with a lot of entrepreneurs as well as parents, both you know in our community and also on social 
that go through the same thing and they often reach out and ask questions around, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm now dating someone, they've got a child or we've been dating for a period of time or we're now married or we're now going to be moving our families together or we're going to start introducing. How do you, because it's one thing to go from, you know, and I know you knew this with my journey, you know, being in a relationship where you've got a child to being a single parent to then being in a relationship with someone who doesn't have a child. Mm. It's different when you get in a relationship with someone who does have a child and now you're integrating four personalities or more if you're Brady Bunch. Um, have you learned the some of the best ways to do that in a really you know in a in a, in a conducive way like obviously there's not going to be any surefire way you and i both know that um, <laughs> but i am curious about some of the lessons that you've learned with that yeah and so i think the number one thing is to understand that that course must be um charted by the grown-ups and so that we have to step in and be in the lead of the of that um uh, blending together of the families and allow for our children to feel that they can rest in our care and rest in our wisdom. And second to that, what I would say is that the pathway to relationship with a child is always, always, always through the existing attachments. And so if you are partnered with somebody and then that person has children, you um, get to gain connection to those children through the partner. So you go through that relationship in order to um, get access to the child's heart. You don't go direct to the child. Uh, and it's important for us to understand that that's how it's all going to um, unroll. The final piece of that is to know that the person that you are partnered with who has a child is not the only um, person that you must go through to get the heart of that child. Because that child has another parent somewhere else. And really, mm. if you want to blend in a way that is um, ultimately uh, connected and full of attachment and belonging, um, you have to welcome all of the parents into the dynamic. Not necessarily concretely, so maybe just an embodiment of energy around that, but you welcome all of those connections and then you gain access to the child through their existing attachments. They're two parents. Mm. And when it comes to um, blending kids, have you, have you got any um, tips or tricks? Oh, that sounds horrible. Or things that you've learned when it comes to blending kids? Because obviously there's the parental dynamic, which comes with it, you know, a whole range of things, which is number one is connection, but also is the extension of authority um, and that being blended. But then you've got the, I guess you could say that the, the kid dynamics of blending the, the new personalities in the room mm -hmm. and doing that in a way, you know, and I know for me personally, sharing my own experience with, um, with Noah and Ayana, it's been fascinating to watch. And one of the things that we've, we've found has worked really well, and this is probably what you're going to say, is just by not forcing it and allowing mm -hmm. the kids to come together to the point where there's a level of friction and then we just take them apart. We both, you know, everyone goes back to their own homes and own corners to build a level of desire to they want to come back and it's like, great, they want to see each other. Yeah, we built, and we, we literally did that on and off over a mm -hmm. period of months to the point now where the kids have spent the last seven days together. Um, and we've barely had any any fights whatsoever. But I'm curious, outside of perhaps that example, are, are there any things that you've learned when it comes to blending kids, which can often have their own dynamics separate to the parents? Yeah. And so whenever we're looking at the dynamics between siblings, be they um, bonus siblings or um, siblings just in the um, uh family of origin, uh, when we're looking at blending, we have to understand that the relational dynamics will flow from the parents, not because of who the children are. And so the first bit of business around all of that is to know, as the incoming bonus parent, the new one in the hood, you got no business parenting that child. No business. Because you have not yet established relational context mm. from which to have the trust that dance that we spoke about earlier mm. for the child to be able to lean into that. And you will yeah, sink so your true. ship. You will sink your ship if you try to be the parent right out of the gates. You have got to earn your place. It comes not from a, a place of role, but rather from a place of relationship. And then when the children are um, starting to blend together, the dynamic, um, I, I love what you said about letting it just be natural and not having it be forced, because when it's forced, it's coming from your need for that to work. 
rather than from the children being able to just float through life and float through this dynamic in a way that really works for them. And when there starts to be friction, sometimes it's just because, you know, different personalities and different things, but oftentimes really entrenched friction between bonus siblings comes from relational patterns back up to parents that are not working. So this child to their bonus parent, it's not working. Or this child to their biological parent, it's not working. It will play out in the dynamic of the um, sibling relationship. And so whenever you see that playing out in an entrenched kind of way, not the things that you described with Noah, but a real dynamic now that has taken hold of the relationship, you've got to retreat. You retreat back to parent-child and bonus parent-child and see where the relationships have gone off track. Mm. I love it. So what's next for you? You've always got something up your sleeve, always something on the boil. Have we got another book in the works? What have we got? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Um, I've, I always say, but it's still too soon. I really want to write the divorce book. I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about conscious divorce um, or about, you know, uh, divorce that works for kids. But very rarely do people bring those two things together where we're talking about the developmental needs of children and this whole thing of divorce, um, including Mm. the blending of families. And so I want to write that book. And just when I think I'm, you know, okay, cool, I'm ready, I'm going to do this now. Then I hit another rock bottom in my own life and realize, okay, yeah, not yet. Got to live it a little more. <laughs> so I'm just got to build a bit more content first. It's going to be a really great <laughs> book when I do write it. <laughs> going to be like a three-part Harry Potter series. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I, I hope you're still playing with the name Divorce Without Damage because I do love that name and it does um, yes. make a great addition to your title. Don't tell anyone, though. Um, no, no one will know. No, no one except for me and you and me and the few million viewers. But um, Vanessa, I always enjoy our conversations. I really do. Um, you know, the fact that we've had you three, t- come and speak for our K2s three times now. The fact that we've got you on the podcast twice. Um, yeah, I just can't spend enough time with you. You have like, and for those people who are listening, this is one lady who's had a significant impact on my life in so many ways. It's really hard to say. Um, but what I can say is thank you. Um, you've had mm. a huge impact on my life, a huge impact in our community. Uh, and also, um, yeah, many people who I care about closely as well. So for those people who would like to know more about you, what you do, your books, products, services, everything, what, where can they go to find out more about Vanessa? The best place is to go to drvanessalapointe.com, drvanessalapointe.com, and to come and hang out with me on social. I'm on Instagram and Facebook mostly um, and uh, put lots of content out on all different uh, levels of parenting. Um, and so you can come and see. But Vanessa, thank you so much. I uh, Yeah, we're going to have to do number three. I look forward to having you back. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on itunes i would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this and if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements upcoming podcasts events and much more please jump onto the website kerwinray.com and also check us out on all social media on the handle at kerwinray thanks for joining us